Welcome, everyone. It's great to see a room full of, I was going to say smiley faces, but I can't see many of your faces if you're wearing face masks. But anyway, I'm sure you're all smiling underneath your masks. I'm sure everyone at home is also smiling as well. There we go. Uh, if you want to find the book of Acts uh, in your Bible, uh, we started a series a few weeks ago uh, in the book of Acts, uh, and we've had to jump around a little bit because uh, I was in quarantine at home last week, so Dan did... A, bit, a little bit later on in the book of Acts, so we jumped around a bit. We're going to be back in chapter one today. Uh, we're calling this series, uh, The World Turned Upside Down, which is what happens later on in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 17. As the book of Acts goes on, the sort of the action, the tempo increases all the time. And there's this amazing story in Acts chapter 17 where Paul, who's one of the key characters in this story, finds himself in the city of Thessalonica. And he arrives there, uh, he tells them about Jesus, uh, and then this kind of riot kicks off and they throw him out of the city. And what they say is, Paul and his companions who came with them, they came and they've turned the world upside down which is, in a sense, what one of the key themes of this book is, that that's what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ arrives, when the church, the people of God, empowered by his spirit, go out into the world to take the message of Jesus. We're supposed to bring transformation. We're supposed to bring the, turn the world upside down. So we're going to be digging into that theme as we go on. And the title of today's message is The Unstoppable Church. The Unstoppable Church. And I'm going to read from verse 12 of Acts 1 through to verse 26. So it says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Oliviet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So if you remember the last part of the story, the beginning of Acts chapter 1, Jesus has come and told them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to come upon them, that they'll be his witnesses through to the ends of the earth, and then he's ascended up to heaven. And now his disciples, have, Jesus having left, have gone back to Jerusalem. Verse 13, it says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It's pleasant for a Sunday morning, isn't it? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, 
a kelma, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Basabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to come to you this morning. We want to open our hearts and lives to you and we want you to speak right into the midst of everything that's happening in this world around us, everything that's happening in our own households, in our own families, in our own lives, in our workplace, in our homes, in our hearts. We want you to speak your word into them this morning, into all those places. We thank you that your word brings life, your truth brings light, brings power and goodness into our lives. And we want to receive everything that you have for us this morning. Pray, Holy Spirit, you would just be at work in this room here, in all the places where people are watching from at home. We pray you'd be speaking powerfully this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this might seem, what we've just read, a bit of a weird interlude in the story. Because if you're a Christian, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know what happens next. That in Acts chapter 1, as we have saw a few weeks ago, we had the ascension where Jesus goes up to heaven. And then in chapter 2, you have Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God. And those are sort of the, what you would probably remember as the beginning of the book of Acts. There's the ascension, where Jesus goes to heaven, and then there's Pentecost. And then, but here we have this weird bit in the middle, this weird sort of pause in the story where the writer Luke, who wrote this book, gives us all this extra information that might seem like just detailed, a bit superfluous, just some kind of extra fluff. You know, is he trying to build what writers would call narrative tension? Is he trying to just gets eager, ready for the next episode of the story? Or is Luke, is he just being a sort of rambly historian? You know, when you picked up one of those old dusty books, history book you might have had at school, and it's just like, oh, just detail that the historian's just got lost in all the information that he's excited about, but has no real relevance, relevance to our lives. What's going on here? Because it seems the first great act that they do the first act in this book of Acts, the first thing they do is they wait. They all just, they go to Jerusalem, they gather in this upper room, and they wait, they pause. The story just stops and dwells here. Well, what's, what's going on? What's this all about? 
Well, I think God's trying to communicate something to them and trying to communicate something to us. That even for a, a, a church of people who are supposed to be unstoppable, that all starts with, with waiting on God. That God's called the church, us here today, it's called these 120 people in this room 2,000 years ago. He's called us to be a, a responsive community. A community that learns what it is to wait on God. He's giving us a lesson in how God interacts with us. And he often interacts with us by helping us just to, just to sit down. Just to stop. Just to wait we live such busy lives and we've learnt more and more and more that whenever we have a moment where we stop we still try and fill it with stuff we, we fill it with entertainment we fill it with, with doom scrolling whatever we do we, we, we never take moments just to stop before God any moments of stopping we want to fill it with, with something we're always seeking more things, more entertainment, more information. But God here in this story, he wants them, before they act, before they go and try and get things done, he wants them to stop and, and wait, to pause. And this, it's not just about sort of stopping and laying down tools. He's not asking them to kind of just meditate and seek some kind of state of zen there's, a, there's an active waiting that God's encouraging them to it says that they devoted themselves to prayer in verse 14 see that prayer to seek God in prayer is the best way to wait for anything <laughs> it's the ultimate activity of waiting is to come and to pray to come and bring your heart, your life, your situation, wherever you find yourself, to bring it to God. And I imagine that's what they were doing in this story, that they've seen Jesus' death, they've seen his resurrection, they've spent these 40 days where he's been teaching them, and then suddenly he's gone. He's told them to wait. And I imagine there would have been a sense of, probably a mixture of anticipation, of expectancy, of excitement of what was to come, mixed in with probably some fear. They were probably scared. They'd just seen what happened to Jesus. He'd been murdered. He told them that they were going to be witnesses. You could also trans translate that word as martyrs for what they believed. They would have been both filled with excitement, but nervous, anxious, scared about what the future might hold but rather than just act and move they chose to to pray instead see when we when we pray when you pray it's you express something of your dependency on God you express something of your own weakness because what we love to do is when we see a problem we love to try and fix it we want we want to act we want to do something we want to take control of the situation where God calls us first of all to actually give away our power and control of that situation and give it to him 
And that's what you do when you, when you pray. When you've got a situation in front of you, maybe you've started this year with things ahead of you. Maybe you've financial worries, concerns about your career, frustration about the corona world we live in, relationship issues. You want to act, you want to do something, you want to fix them, you want to solve them. And yet the best thing you can do actually is to bring it to Jesus. Come and express your, your need for him. Just acknowledge your own weakness and helplessness. But also acknowledge his power to act and to move. And not just for us individually as as a church, as a people of God here in this city with so many dreams and promises of what we'd love to see God to do in this city. We'd love to see a move of God sweep across this city of many people to come to know Jesus. When we see that some of the, the, the elements of life in this city that grieve our hearts, that make us sad, we want to see God move and transform this place. We want to see our city turned upside down. But all through of history and all through this book, the Bible, any move of God, which is what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, this incredible move of God that takes about 30 years for this story to play out, it starts here, in this room, in prayer. That's how any move of God begins, in prayer. Anything you might want to see happen in your life, anything we might want to see happen in this city for the glory of God the best thing not just the first thing but the ongoing thing we can do is to pray is to seek God it's where the church is at its best when the church is at its most powerful is when it's on its knees in prayer before him see to do that to wait in prayer actually it takes it takes courage to do that it's often easier to act. It's often easier to try and fix things. It's often easier to try and come up with a solution ourselves. But yet God calls us to, no, no, just, just wait on me. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation. You just want to do something, but you feel this tug on your heart that you just need to wait on God. And it feels incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> Read the story of Elijah in, in 1 and 2 Kings. You'll see how again and again, a great hero of the Bible, but there are moments in his life where God says, no, you just need to wait now. He's like, no, I want to do so. I want to go and show these miracles. I want to do these amazing things. And God says, no, you need to wait. Maybe that's the thing that you need to hear at the start of this year. You've been trying to problem solve. You've been trying to fix, trying to come up with solutions. God says, no, you just need to wait. Just stop. Stop trying to fix. Stop trying. Just come and wait on God. Ask for his power to fill you and to help you. But even before that, just Wait. And to do that is, it's scary. It's scary to wait on God. 
It's scary to give away our control of the situation. It's scary to acknowledge, I really am weak in this situation. I really can't fix it. I really need God to move. But when we do that, when we take that active waiting, when we courageously wait for God, what happens is is that you, you get to wait with all the promises of God on your side. When you stop to hear from him, when you stop to put your trust in him, you suddenly find yourself with all the promises of God are on your side. See, because in the second part of this story, you get this, again, what might seem a bit of a, a weird, peculiar interlude to the story where it tells us about what happened to, to Judas who betrayed Jesus and how the disciples had to replace him and it's a weird part of the story because often in a story where new characters are introduced you'd think they will play some role later on in the book of Acts these two men that that they they choose from uh, Matthias and uh, Joseph but actually they kind of disappear from the story (laughs) I think both of them have very occasional minor references later in this book, but they're really trivial. They, they just sort of disappear out of, out of the story. And you think, why does, why does Luke, why is he so keen to tell us about these two people? Why is he so keen to tell us about what happened to Judas, that slightly bloody, gory story? He fell open in a field and his guts went everywhere. It's like a scene from a zombie movie. It's all very weird. Well, what's happening through this chapter, all through this book actually, in fact all through the whole Bible, is there are lots of little like hyperlinks sprinkled through the text. Lots of little buttons that you can push on which will fire you off to another part of the Bible. So there's the obvious ones here where Peter in his little message here quotes from the Psalms where he says, and he says it's written in the book of Psalms and then he quotes two passages from Psalm 69, he's, he's kind of firing off to another part of the Bible. So some of them are obvious, but there's also, all through this story, there's little hints, gestures, reminders, going back to other bits of the Bible. Because you've got to remember that what this, who Luke is writing to are uh, Jews, uh, uh, Israelites. We often, we read the Bible with our own lenses on, our 21st century eyes on it which isn't a bad way to read the Bible, we also have to remember that this was written originally for a different group of people 2,000 years ago with a different life and different experiences. And he's writing to, to many Jews to try and convince them that the Messiah that they've been longing for all through this book has come in Jesus Christ. That the kingdom that, that they've been dreaming of, that the restoration of their nation that they've been living for is now all going to be fulfilled in Jesus and in his people, the church. That all the promises of God for the Israelites are now to be worked out through the people of God, his church, all through to us today. And one of the, one of the sort of hints in this story one of the reminders I think Luke is trying to draw them to is a story in the book of 1 Kings in the Bible. Whereas 1 Kings starts in the similar way as the book of Acts starts. 
that David, who you can read his story in 1 and 2 Samuel, he, he dies at the start of 1 Kings. His life, in a sense, kind of fizzles out a little bit. And then there's a, there's a pause, the same way there's a pause here. There's a bit of a gap in the story where they're waiting for David's been this great king that's come and he was supposed to usher in this kind of reign of the kings who were going to take this nation and make them mighty and that's what they're all hoping for that's what they're longing for and there's this pause in the story and while there's a pause in the story they deal with Joab and Joab had murdered several people so Joab is dealt with he's got rid of in the same way that Judas in this story it's an echo of what happened to Joab before. But what they're waiting for in, in the book of Kings, what the Israelites would have been dreaming, would hoping for, would be this, this new kingdom, this reign of these David-like kings to come. But it doesn't happen. When you read the story of the Old Testament again and again, they have these hopes and dreams and they end up failing. It slips away from them because of their sin that they fail to live up to the promises of God. They fail to follow his commandments, his covenant, and everything fizzles out. And what Luke is doing in this story, why he's giving all this detail here, is he's talking to his Jewish audience and he's saying, these, these great kings that you've been hoping for, this great dream that you were living with that never quite came about he's, he's saying them no now something has happened in the life death and resurrection of Jesus something is about to happen in the coming of the Holy Spirit that changes everything all the promises that they'd been hoping for through this book he's saying they're on the cusp of something that there's a new beginning that something new is starting that all the promises of God are now suddenly going to bubble into action again. And that message isn't just, didn't just need to be heard by the Jews 2,000 years ago, it needs to be heard by us today. The, the, the church, us, the people of God here in this city, we're not just like a club that happens to all read the same book. We're not just a group of people who, who like to come and sing songs together on a Sunday morning. We, we, we're walking in, in all the promises of God. We're walking in everything that he has for us. Walking in, in his great salvation plan for this planet he's commissioned us his people to take it to the ends of the earth the promise that he gives them at the start of the book of acts we're living in that still now today there was a missionary in in england about 200 years ago who went to china he founded what was called the china inland mission the name was hudson taylor at the time there would have been uh, barely any Christians in the whole of China literally just a handful and he moved there and ended up planting churches all over China and now there are probably more Christians in China than there are 
Well, there definitely are more Christians in China than there would be in the whole of Europe, perhaps in many other places as well. He started a move of God in that biggest nation of all that has sort of snowballed into this massive thing. But when he, he, he started, he was, just, he was just a humble young guy with lots of dreams, lots of ideas, but, but he didn't have any money. He didn't have any people. And his first step in setting up the China Inland Mission was that he opened a bank account and someone had given him 10 English pounds, which if you know your currency is 10 English pounds would be about 12 euros today. And it would have been a lot more 200 years ago, but still would have probably been about, about 100 euros. It wasn't a lot of money. But he opened this bank account and uh, as you would in those days, you have like a ledger where you write down in your book Dan was an accountant, you know all about this sort of stuff. And he wrote down in his ledger uh, his first kind of opening line of this new account. He wrote down uh, 10 pounds and all the promises of God. <laughs> and that's, that's how we get to live today. That you can look around and you can feel a bit feeble, perhaps. We as a church can look at the city around us and think, well, what could we do? But we have on our side all the promises of God. We have on our side all his plans, all his purposes. We have his power, which is about to come on his people in the next chapter. And one of the things that we have to learn how to do as Christians is to wait on God and to seek him through setbacks, through challenge, through difficult situations. That's what it is to be a Christian, is that you'll often find yourself in situations like that. Maybe if you're here this morning or you're watching this and you're not a Christian, you're probably familiar with this as well. That we often come across that when we have dreams and hopes and plans, maybe that's how the whole of the last two years of this corona season has felt for you just this massive setback in your life. I was cycling here this morning and I was cycling past a new development of apartments that they're building by the, the bottom of the Amstel. And there was a big advertising hoarding for these new apartments that said, it said, dream big, live small. <laughs> Which is a... A bit tongue-in-cheek of the Amsterdam experience, isn't it? People come here with all sorts of hopes and dreams. They come to this city and they're going to live, live their best life now. They're going to earn lots of money. They're going to study. They're going to become famous. Whatever dream you came to this city with, that's why people come here. Amsterdam is that sort of place. But the, the reality is you come with all these dreams and the reality is, is that you end up living in a cupboard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you've got your bed and your sink and your toilet and you, can, you don't have to get out of bed to use any of them it's often how life can feel very small it was, I found it amusing over the Christmas period we went to visit some family in England and going to my brother's house in Manchester uh, it was just so big they have, they have one room where you, know, where you sit with all the comfy chairs and then they had another room which also had comfy chairs where you sit. I was like, why do you need two of these rooms? That's just greedy. But the, you know, it's, 
I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it, but, you know, they live big, dream small. I don't know. I don't know. There's not a nice way to say it. But, <laughs> in, see, living life today in a city like this, even living as a Christian in the kingdom of God, can often feel like that. Big dreams, but the reality of your situation might feel quite small. I don't mean where you live, I mean how your life feels to you. It doesn't always meet your expectations. Often it doesn't. You've got these plans, these ideas. Even when you get to the point where the dreams that you had, you might even get to the the lucky position where you see them fulfilled, where you see them happen, and then even then, they, they don't, they're not quite what you thought they would be. They don't live up to the hype. The dream that you've had in your heart doesn't match the experience which you live out. And that's often what, what this city will, will do to you. That you'll come here with dreams and hopes and ideals. But they can't, they can't deliver. They can't give you quite what you're looking for. You can end up feeling disappointed, disillusioned, crushed by what's happened. And what, what God wants you to do, he doesn't want you to stop dreaming. <laughs> but he wants to, to, he wants, he wants to draw you into himself. That's what, again and again, through the Bible, even in this story, we come across stories of setbacks. You'll experience them in your own life. And what God wants you to do in those moments is just to draw deeper into him. Because you'll find as you, as you learn to, to, to dwell with God, as you learn just to step into just waiting on him, what he'll do in that place is you'll begin to enlarge your life. Where the world will say to us, just go do all these things right off. This will make your life big. This will fulfill your dreams if you go here and you do this and you do that. Jesus says, just come and be with me. Just come and dwell with me. Just come and wait on God and he'll begin to enlarge your life in that place begin to enlarge your heart in that place you'll begin to reform all your dreams and desires all the things you long for you'll begin to not necessarily replace them but you'll suddenly find that your motivation begins to change there might be a certain career that you set your heart on and God he might he, he, you might God might give you the same dream, but instead of wanting that career so you could have fame or wealth or money, he'll give you the desire to have that career for the kingdom of God. To have that career so you can display his love to the people around you, to be in your workplace, to love and to serve, to be involved in transforming society in whatever way that God leads you to. He'll begin to, in a sense, sanctify, to change, to help you to reimagine all those dreams in his plans, in his purposes. And part of the lesson in that waiting for us is just to learn how to, to trust him, <laughs> to, 
to trust in God. There's a peculiar end to this story where, where they draw lots to choose which of these two men, Joseph or Matthias, which one that they're going to go with, and they draw lots, which seems a bit weird. Like we don't tend to do that today. And there are some parts of the, the Bible that are descriptive. They describe something to us, and some parts that are prescriptive, as in they tell us what we should do. And this isn't prescriptive. It's not telling us that we should start drawing lots all the time. I knew of a guy who did that. He took a coin with him everywhere he went, and that's how he made decisions. So I'm just going to flip this coin. Shall I get out of bed this morning? Nope, I'm going to stay here. Coin said no. It's not saying that's how we should live, that we should just draw lots. The emphasis on this story is not about them drawing lots, is that they were trusting God. It's the way they chose to make a decision uh, which wasn't dependent on them, wasn't dependent on them taking a vote and agreeing, but said, no, we want, we want God to decide who's going to take Judah's place. We want to trust in him. See, in their waiting, they learned to trust in God. And in their waiting, they, as we'll find out next week, they received his power, but they also received his grace. Because I think... Luke's readers, and maybe us today, the question that you might have is, what's, what's so different? Luke's trying to tell them that this Messiah, this David-like king has come. That all the old kings of the Old Testament never hit the mark, but this king has come now to usher in this new reign, this new kingdom that his power is going to come on them and it's going to change everything. But the question they might have, well, what's different? <laughs> They've seen this story. They know the Bible. They know their own lives. They know how things have gone. What's changed? What's fundamentally different now? And what's different is that before, every one of these human kings and kingdoms was undermined by their own failure, by their own refusal to follow God by their own disobedience again and again and again. Whereas now this kingdom isn't, isn't based on whether or not some human king is going to follow God or not. This kingdom is based upon Jesus, on the grace of God which has come. See, to be part of this kingdom now isn't based on our behavior anymore. It's not dependent on how well, how much you can do, how much you can achieve. It's based on the grace of God. So it doesn't matter how many, how many setbacks you faced, which if you're really honest with yourself, they were because of your failure, because of your fault, because of your disobedience, because of our refusal to trust in God every time we can come and step back into his grace again. We can step back in and know his forgiveness, know his renewal that comes to our hearts, his transformation. At the very, at the very heart of this new kingdom of God is this new covenant that he's decided for us, that the king has come now. He's a king of love and grace and forgiveness. I'm going to pray and then we're going we're gonna to worship together. Why don't, if you're here in the room, why don't you stand just as I pray? 
Jesus, we just, God, we, uh, we just wanna take hold of the promises of God this morning that you've called your people, your church, to be unstoppable, but that isn't based on how unstoppable we feel, but it's all based on your grace, your mercy, and on your power. And what we want to do, how we want to respond today is we just want to come and wait on you. I just want to pray for all my dear friends here this morning, all these dear brothers and sisters, that they would just take a moment just to wait on you. Whatever setbacks they've been experiencing, they've been feeling, that they would just come and bring their hearts to you again and just come and receive your grace again. Well, we've just been, been trying to fix it, trying to push our way through, trying to just take control of the situation. Help us just to come and trust you this morning. Where we've had all these dreams and hopes and ideas, we just want to bring all of them to you this morning just to wait on you. Knowing that in you come all the promises of God for us your people, your church, and we want to receive it. We want to receive it this morning, but we want to, first of all, just bring our hearts to you. Just ask for your help, your forgiveness where we need it, your grace where we need it, and your power to come. I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, would you just equip us, equip us for what you've called us to do. Equip us, first and foremost, to see more of your grace and love toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.